That is uh, a dear friend of mine, Jim Kirkland. He's served as a mentor, peer, advisor to me, uh, former pastor for many years, and leads a, a wonderful ministry that he just explained that. I don't need to re-explain to you, but uh, I believe you'll be blessed while he's here. I want to talk about that workshop really quick that he talked about. Um, if you have ever felt that you could be more effective in caring for people, and especially as it pertains to listening and hearing from people and encouraging them uh, with a biblical perspective, with God's word, and being a good Christian sounding board. A lot of times we feel like we, as lay people, cannot uh, counsel or care for people because we don't have a degree in psychology or a counseling degree or whatever it might be. And while those things are very valuable and important and helpful, I think we undercut how much we can bring to the table as children of God filled with the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, and even as people who are filled by the Holy Spirit and therefore ought to be equipped and uh, capable at caring for one another. And so if you want to grow in your ability to at least do that, to, to listen, to care, to hear, to encourage, to, to counsel your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a great workshop for you. And then also I'll say this, um, Jim, uh, we have uh, one person in our church who's gone through his program to become a, a, um, a chaplain. We have another going through that program. And so uh, if you've ever entertained that idea, um, he's a great resource to get plugged in that direction. Having said that, now let me say happy Father's Day, all you dads in here. If you're a dad, go ahead and stand up. We're going to do that for a second. I know uh, a lot of times we don't like that. Stand up and, and, and look at me, but go ahead, guys, stand up. And can we just give a hand clap? Can we thank the Lord? Thank you, guys. For all that you do, all that you've done, you can be seated. I think one of the greatest problems in society today is fatherlessness. And many of the problems that pervade our culture and our society are the results of fatherless homes and uh, fatherless children. And I could cite and look up a bunch of statistics that confirm that. I've done that before, but let me just do all that to say this, your call from God as a father is so important. And if you are not a biological father, um, you have the opportunity to be a spiritual father to those in the family of God who might look up to you and have something to learn from you. And this is also a day wherein we get to consider and thank the Lord for the perfect father we have and our heavenly father. And wherein I will also say, if today is a painful day for you because of your relationship with your father or with your children as a father, it's a wonderful day for forgiveness and reconciliation. It's a wonderful day to let the past be the past. It's a wonderful day to receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God for our sin and to give that as well to those who might have sinned against us in a familial relationship. So if I had the wonderful blessing this morning. My parents live in Texas, but I got to hug my dad's literal neck this morning as they'd been in visiting for four days, and now he's there on the road again heading back out. But uh, if you've got access to your father, hug him, thank him. If you don't, uh, give him a call, 
and uh, we're thankful for fathers this morning. We're going to continue on today in our series on the parables. Last week, Aaron taught the parable of the sower with the four different soils, and of course, we want to be the good soil, the good soil, and I'll ask again what makes the good soil, and I'll pull back from Matthew 13, 23 from last week, where Jesus said this, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So last week we saw that the good soil are those who hear and understand or receive God's word. These are those who, unlike the three bad soils, like the one where the seed of the word of God was stolen away by not understanding God's word, or the other by not having deep enough roots to endure hardship or trials and suffering and to stay faithful, or the third bad soil which turned away from God because of loving the things of this world, the good soil, that's who we want to be, amen? The good soil are those of us who hear and understand and receive God's word. Today, we'll see that Jesus requires us to take that understanding one step further, and this is going to be echoing or reticent of the book of James that we just finished and continuing on from the parable that we learned last week. And so let's turn really quick. We're not going to read the Sermon on the Mount, but I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to be reading the whole Sermon on the Mount as we've done that before, and it takes about 15 to 20 minutes. But I want to point something out before we get to the parable that we're going to read today. So Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the famous sermon, the greatest sermon of all time, where Jesus is on the mountainside with a massive people who are sitting and listening to him teach. And he covers a litany of things. If you've got your Bible, I want you to just turn with me to kind of see all this, because we're not going to read it all. But you see, the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes, right? The blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then he goes on to talk about how we are the salt and the light of the earth, that we bring flavor and we bring light into darkness. He goes on then to talk about how he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law, but to complete it, its work. Then he goes on this section of talking about how, how even though the law was good, that the law commanded things like don't commit adultery, and then he ups the ante by saying, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And then he goes on to say, you know, if you're angry, the, or, or the Old Testament, the law says don't commit murder. But I say if you're even angry at your brother without cause, you're just as guilty. So he's upping the ante for the people like me who thought they were really good. But then he zooms into the heart to reveal the sin that's in there. And then after that, he goes on uh, to talk about divorce. He talks about oaths. He talks about not promising, but merely just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't promise or make oaths. He talks about retaliation. He says, don't uh, seek revenge or a vengeance. But then he actually says, forgive your enemies. And then he ups the ante there even more by saying, in fact, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. 
Then he begins talking about giving to the needy and he says, hey, when you are compelled to be generous and give to people, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do your good deeds in secret, meaning do your good deeds before the eyes of the Father and not before the eyes of men. When you feel compelled to do a good deed, are you looking around to see who's watching? He's saying, don't be like that. And then he teaches us how to pray with the famous Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. After that, he goes into teaching about fasting and saying, hey, when you fast, don't dishevel your face and make your shoulders collapse and go, oh, oh, oh I'm making it through. So that people go, what's on? What's, what's wrong with you? And you go, oh, I'm just fasting, brother. Praise God, I'm going to make it through. Trying to show how spiritual you are. He says, don't do that because when you do that, you've got your reward in impressing people. But again, do things in a way where you are trying to please and honor your Father. Then he goes on to say, don't, don't lay up treasures here on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. He goes on then to say, don't be anxious about anything. And he talks about not worrying about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. Knowing your heavenly Father knows you have need of those things. But instead, seek God and his kingdom first, and he's going to take care of of all of those things. He then goes on to talk about not judging others in the sense of um, judging them in a way where we're not recognizing that we have ourselves to look at. Then he talks about uh, the famous golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Then he gives discernment by saying you'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know what kind of person someone is, especially a preacher, a prophet, a teacher, by, by the fruit of their life. And then he gives a very sobering nugget about how there will be people who prophesied in his name and cast out demons in his name and healed the sick in his name that to, on the last day he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. That there could be people who know how to do all these wonderful things yet don't truly know Jesus. That's, that's a terrifying wake-up call for all of us. And after all of that, we get to the parable that we're going to be on today, the parable of the wise and foolish builders. Now, some have argued that the Sermon on the Mount was meant to present a moral standard that is so high that it could not be achieved until the return of Christ in the millennium. I disagree with that. Others would argue that Jesus was teaching a sermon with such a high standard that it would crush us as the law does, that it would bring to us our realization of our need for Christ, that you would hear things like, you've heard the Old Testament law say, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart, and you would go, oh snap, I thought I was good, but I'm in trouble. And so some have argued that Jesus um, was trying to do the same thing there and raising the bar, raising the standard, so that we would recognize our need for Christ. And I do actually believe that that is part of what's happening here, but not only that. Just like the Old Testament, we see in hindsight that the law was given for multiple purposes, it was given for, uh, first for civil use with the Israelites, God's commands on how they were to live as his people, unlike other peoples, and that the law of God 
and the fear of its reprisals would curb or discourage lawlessness and sinful behavior and wickedness, wicked, harmful living. And this is what uh, John Calvin would talk about with the, the threefold use of the law. And I want to point these three things out really quick. The threefold, uh, Calvin famously hundreds of years ago presented that there are three uses for the law. Number one, the pedagogical use. So this is really academic and big fancy words. But a pedagogue is what? A teacher. He's saying that the first use of God's law is that it teaches us. It, as I was pointing out, that when you see God's commands, you try to obey them, and your inadequacy, your insufficiency reveals that something's wrong with your heart, and you are taught that there is a holy, righteous, loving, and just God whom we fall short of, and therefore we need a Savior whom saves us by grace not by obeying the law. The second use of the law is the civil use, which curbs evil and promotes justice. This is why for hundreds and even thousands of years, countries and societies and communities have used God's law to implement civil law in their land. This is why for so long, um, the courthouses would have the ten, the ten Commandments on. How many of you would agree that it's better that our countries and our communities have laws like don't murder? That's a good law, right? And so God's law, the second use of it is that it serves civil use, wherein uh, society is best when it is in agreement with God's laws. The third use of the law is the normative use. And this is where we see God's law and it trains our hearts and minds for righteousness. Where when we read God's law, it reveals to us what he loves and what he hates. And as children of God adopted into his family, we want to pay attention to that. We want to know what God loves. We want to know what God hates. And we want to please him. And so those are three uses of the law. Um, Calvin would note the first use of the law. What we see revealed more so in the New Testament is that the law was given as a mirror reflecting God's perfect holiness and righteousness wherein we would see ourselves as sinful, broken, inadequate, incapable of pleasing God because of being dead in sin. In fact, uh, Augustine many, many years ago said, the law orders that we after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law may learn to implore the help of grace. Saying the law requires of us what we cannot do. And when we try, we recognize we need the help of grace. So the law shows our need for a gracious and merciful Savior. It rigorously trains us toward Christ and the gospel of salvation by grace through faith not salvation by obedience to the law. Are you with me? So the law doesn't save us. It reveals our need for a Savior. And finally, that, that third use of the law, Calvin would argue that normative use is what teaches us how we can live pleasing to God. Not in a let's live pleasing to God so he will accept us and welcome us into his family. No, that's trying to earn salvation. Rather, a woe, we have received the lavish grace of God. We have received his love. And as 1 John tells us, we love because he first loved us. 
And therefore, since he has loved us, we want to love him. And since he has been good and gracious and merciful and generous and kind and patient to us, we want to please him. We want to serve him. We want to obey him. It's this mindset that I'm adopted into his family by his love and grace and him being my perfect, loving, heavenly father on this Father's Day who has all authority, who has all abundance and has paid for my redemption, that that loving, gracious, and merciful father with all authority also has every right to command me how to live. As his child, I, we, are expected to obey. But if I haven't used the law in its first purpose yet, which is to help me recognize my need for a savior, then I'm going to be compelled to obey and, and attempt to earn God's love, to earn God's acceptance, to earn God's forgiveness, which is counterintuitive or counterproductive to what God has done. So if the weight of God's law has crushed us, meaning we've tried to obey it and we've recognized that we can't on our own, and we've confessed and repented of sin and we're trusting in Christ for our salvation, then, after that first use, then, if we've come to faith in Christ, then the law teaches us what pleases our Father. Then, the power of the Holy Spirit within us, indwelling every believer, I am and we are expected to joyfully obey. Not by our own ability or our own strength, but by the power of God within every single born-again believer who has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. So after, after Jesus takes all this time in the Sermon on the Mount, again, teaching all these really high standards, laying out expectations and commands that would make anybody who feels like they're going, yeah, I can do that. In fact, after Jesus raises the bar so much, at one point he says, in fact, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if up to that point you're thinking, okay, that's hard, but, but I think I can do it. When you hear Jesus say, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect, that's where, if you're honest... You go, oh no, I'm not perfect. I can't, I can't be perfect. Yet, by the power of God and the Holy Spirit within us, he enables us. After Jesus does all of this teaching, giving us all sorts of difficult things to do, hired standards, beautiful kingdom truths, he wraps all of that teaching up, the Sermon on the Mount, with this parable in Matthew chapter 7. Let's turn there. Verse 24, he says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine, remember he just finished, he's finishing this huge sermon, and he says, everyone who hears these words of mine, everything I just said, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man 
who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is a really simple illustration to understand, right? It's a pretty clear parable here. I'm not a construction guy. I've never been super handy. I've been learning more from my father-in-law and been helping out with projects here and there. I've learned a lot since I've been married as stuff in the house breaks and I, I get on YouTube to try and figure out how to break stuff. But you don't have to know much at all. You don't have to know much at all about construction to know if you want to build a house that will stand, what's the very first thing you do? Say it loud. It's, you got it. Firm foundation. We just sang it, right? Christ is my firm foundation. If you try and build a house without a foundation, that house will eventually fall. Just takes the right set of circumstances. Just takes the right storm, the right erosion, enough time. Things are going to get to where that house will fall. You don't have to be in the construction field to understand that. Jesus recognizes his audience the same way that they recognize it's foolish to build your house on sand. It's foolish to go, I'm going to build and put all this energy and resource and effort into building our home on something that has no foundation. It's wasted effort and energy because all it takes is a good enough storm to bring that house of cards down. Jesus concludes his sermon with the parable of the wise and foolish builders essentially saying this, hey, everything I just said, if you're wise, you'll act accordingly or obey. And if you don't, it will be, will be to your detriment and even ultimately to your destruction or demise. Isn't this really the same lesson or the same message as the book of James that we don't want to be hearers only deceiving ourselves but being doers of the word also? That, that James told us, hey, let's not be the people who just go, yeah, I have faith and you have works. That no, we go, man, I'm going to live out my faith through my works and that we're going to act on and walk out what the word of God says. That is the person who is wise. Now, why are they wise? What makes this person wise? Is it because they will have a more prosperous life free of hardship? Free of trial? No, not at all. Although obeying God and his law does, of course, absolutely improve our lives in various ways. Like, you go to the Old Testament law and you see that the, the, the borrower is slave to the lender. And if, if you choose to live in a way where you're not heaping up debt, your life is going to be better. Like if you obey God's law, there are ways in which your life will be better. But that's not why Jesus is saying that person is wise. Because the conclusions of this story are more ultimate, just like almost every other parable is. One way to look at the storms in this parable is that the testing of life, similar to the person 
uh, from the parable of the sower. Remember, one of those so, uh, soils that was bad soil was the stony ground. The stony ground, the rocky ground, is the one who hears the word with gladness. You can hear the word every Sunday with gladness. You can hear the word as you read your Bible with gladness. But the word is choked out by hardship, by suffering, by tribulation. And that person or that soil doesn't grow into a full harvest, a.k.a. that soil or that person does not become a true Christian. But they turn away from the Lord when God doesn't fix their problems or stop their suffering in the way or when or how he wants. So one way you could look at the storm is that the person who has built their house on the sand by hearing God's word but not obeying God's word, that person is the person who delights in the idea. This is the person who loves Bible study. This is a person who loves getting into a community group and digging into the word and going, oh, this is super interesting. What do you think about it? And what did you learn? And oh, did you see what I saw from here? And let's drop revelation bombs in our conversation and blow each other's minds. Yet then walks out the door and there's no implications on the way they live from what they read. I remember when I was in Bible school, that was like the thing to do. That we would get together and we'd have Bible studies and it was essentially like this revelation competition where we'd be going, all right, we're in the book of Romans and we'd read together and we'd go, oh man, did you see? And like the goal of it was just to try to impress each other with what we dug out or what we learned. There was not a frame of mind at all as to go, man, what does this say? How do we obey that? How does this implicate our lives? What does it look like to live out, to walk out, to obey what we just read? This is one of the reasons that a lot of times people love coming to church and getting the feels, good worship where you're encouraged, the message encourages you and you're inspired, you want that pick-me-up, but then you go out the door and there's no way that it's changed your life, affected your life, that you're not thinking about how do I live in light of what I just read or in light of what I just heard? This is why when we gather together as a church family and we're taught the word of God or when you're in your daily, hopefully daily Bible reading or when you're in your Bible study or your community groups with others, whatever it might be, that we have a different perspective that our goal is not just to talk together about these things. Rather that we go, how do we live this out? What are the implications on our lives? The other way to look at it, which I think is also faithful, and actually more so when we talk about this parable, more so the proper ultimate interpretation of this parable, is to see the storm as the final test of judgment. Just like the parable of the sower, and to be quite honest, just like almost, almost every single parable Jesus taught. If you step back and you look at all of Jesus' parables, the overwhelming majority of them, I'd say at least 90% of them, the ultimate point is, are you in the kingdom of God or not? Are you saved or not? Salvation is the primary thread in most of Jesus' parables. Not all of them, but most. Whether or not someone is in the kingdom of God. 
I wish I had time to break that down today, but Jesus wasn't just trying to teach us how to have a better life, but how to find life in him. I'm going to say that again. Jesus was not just trying to teach us how to have a better life. He was trying to help us find life itself, which is in him. And that in finding him and receiving and obeying his word, firstly with faith and repentance, that then graduates into receiving and obeying his word by living a life of holiness, a life consecrated to God, a life set apart, a life pleasing God with joy in our hearts. Now, here's the thing. I know this is a lot of talk that's ultimately about one of our favorite words, obedience. This is a lot of talk about obedience, and I know what some are thinking. Well, Stephen, isn't that legalism? Like if you're telling me that, that our relationship with God has a lot to do with obeying commands, doesn't that shift into legalism where we're like, our relationship with him is all legalistic and we just have to like obey, obey, obey. Like where's the, the faith, the grace, and the love and all, uh, all of that? And, and that's absolutely true. And some might say, isn't it less about obeying and more about believing? And I would just remind you of everything we learned from James, that believing turns into obeying or working or doing or acting because, because of this. Grace transforms our hearts. The grace of God changes our hearts and therefore transforms our do. Grace from God transforms our heart and then that transforms what we do, how we live, what we don't do. The difference, or I'll say this, we don't obey because we have to obey, which we do, but the motive of the Christian is different. We obey because we get to, because we want to, because we want to please, <coughs> excuse me, our good, loving, gracious, and merciful Father. And so the difference between legalism and discipline or obedience, or the difference between legalism and joyful obedience, is the disposition of the heart. Here's the thing. The actions look the same. You can have two people doing the exact same thing. You can have two people volunteering at Salvation Army, serving the needy. You can have two people writing the same exact penny amount on a check to give to the church. And one of them is being legalistic and one of them is worshiping their father. You can have two people who faithfully attend church, or attend church every single Sunday and one of them is doing it in legalism and one of them is doing it out of joyful obedience to God. What's the difference? The difference is what has happened to the heart of the individual. Isn't this what you want from your children on this Father's Day, dads? It's the same thing as you tell your children to do something and do you want your child to just do it? Okay. Yesterday, I had to correct my daughters who were arguing and I said, now, apologize to each other. I'm sorry. You've heard me say this before, but what is that statement followed with? Say it like you mean it. How do you mean it? It has to come from the heart. 
And this is the beauty of the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherein you can sit here and look at all these commands, you can look at all these high standards that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and you can go, man, that is a heavy burden to bear. And if you try to live that way, obeying all those commands will crush you because you're not strong enough on your own. But when you have beheld the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ on the cross and see the love that God has for you, that while you were a sinner, dead in sin, that the good, loving, gracious, and merciful Father said, I love you enough to pay for your sin by the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And when you see that and you recognize that God could love a sinner like you and like me, man, that grips your heart. And that's where the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both prophesied that there's coming a new covenant where we won't be led by the hand or by the law, dragged around like kids who don't want to go where their dad wants them to go. Rather, the kids are going, Dad, I want to be with you. Tell me what to do. The grace of God changes our heart. I love what R. Kent Hughes said in his book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, which if you're a man, I'd encourage you to read that book. It's wonderful. He said this, The difference is one of motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and I want to please Him. Further, let's see what Scripture says about it a little bit. If you're still bristling against this concept of obedience, let's remember the Great Commission that we read every Sunday at the end of our services now. Let's go back to verse 18. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Pause. Jesus is saying, I'm in charge. I'm Lord. All authority is mine. Go therefore. Since this is not a suggestion is what Jesus is saying. It's not something I'm just hoping you'll do or ask you to do if you're kind enough or gracious enough or missional enough. No, he's saying all authority is mine. And because all authority is mine, I'm telling you, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to observe, other translations would say obey, all I have asked you to do. Is that what it says? Teaching them to observe or obey all I have suggested. All I have commanded. You know that's what it says. John 3 and 36 says, this is Jesus talking, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 15, 8 through 11, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is talking about abiding in his love, connected with obeying his commands and saying, I'm telling you this, obey me and abide in my love that your joy 
that your joy may be full. Not your begrudging, reluctant, okay, dad. Not a, I'd rather do this, but don't want to burn, you know, so okay. No, I'm telling you, abide in me, remain in my love by obeying my commandments that your joy may be full. This is our Lord, our master Jesus talking. Acts 5 and 32. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Romans 6, 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to, excuse me, That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient, where? From the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, there's your freedom, have become slaves of righteousness. There's your commands. Hebrews 5 and 9 says this, And being made perfect, talking about Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to who? All who obey him. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, what's this, what does he say? And his commandments are not burdensome, yet they are if you don't love him. They are if the Holy Spirit has not changed your heart and made you new. The commands are burdensome if you've not been changed internally by the love, grace, and power of God. The difference between the legalist is the person who's going, I want to be accepted by God, and so I'm going to try and obey. The obedient child is the one who has been forgiven and goes, man, I can't earn forgiveness and love, so I repent, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I receive the lavish grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God, and now he's changed my heart. And now my joy gets filled up by obeying him. My joy gets refilled by doing what his word says. If you're a a grumpy, sad, begrudging Christian, is it possible that we're not being very obedient and therefore not experiencing the joy that comes from obeying our good, gracious, and merciful Father? Like if you've been saved by the grace of God and you're lacking in joy, is it possible that you're lacking in obedience. We love coming in and hearing a message and going, man, that was inspiring and encouraging and man, what, what a great teaching or great message in scripture or whatever. And then going out, obeying is a lot harder. But when you have love in your heart for the Father, for the Lord who is commanding you, then John says, His commands are not burdensome. They are to our delight. That's just a a brief cursory look at a few places in the New Testament, and we could go a lot more, but we don't have time. But if you think that obedience is not part 
of your relationship to God through Jesus Christ, you're deceiving yourself. The difference is the motive. The question is not, do we or don't we obey? The question is, is your heart dead in sin or alive in Christ? Because if your heart has been made alive in Christ, his commands will not be burdensome, but a delight. You will have joy in your obedience, not begrudging submission. And as a father on Father's Day, I can tell you, man, oh man, does it please me not only when my girls obey, but when they obey and I've told them to clean their room and they come out, Daddy, Daddy, come look. When they don't come out saying, Daddy, Daddy, come look. And they tell me they've cleaned their rooms or maybe they're doing something else. And I say, have you cleaned your room? Uh, yes. They don't want me to go look. Because they didn't really obey fully or they didn't do it thoroughly or whatever. But when they come out, with joy in their hearts because they know they obeyed their father, they're pleased to come and say, Dad, come look at what I did. I obeyed you. And they know that I'm going to go, yeah, great job, or whatever it might be. I love them the same whether they obey or disobey. I love them the same. But man, am I pleased when they obey me, and especially with joy in our heart. Two things Wherein we must obey. First, we must obey the gospel. That's repent and believe. I've talked a good bit about that already today. Every single human is commanded by God to repent of sin and place their faith in Jesus. We all are called to that. And I could share with you story after story after story. And in just a minute, we're going to baptize two people and we're going to hear their stories. But I can share with you story after story after story of people whose hearts used to be hard towards God. People who loved sin just like all of us at one time. People who loved darkness but then heard the gospel. Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repented of sin and were transformed and are yet being more and more transformed by the Holy Spirit of God and through the Word of God. People who used to hate God but now love Him and want to please Him. And as I scan this room, there are some faces, some stories that I know that I am thrilled to have seen someone who used to hate God and now loves God. Second, we must second obey our master. We must obey the gospel of repent and believe. And then second, we must obey our master where he said, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Once you have obeyed the gospel of repenting of sin and turning or trusting in Christ, you are no longer your own person. You don't belong to yourself. You have been bought with the priceless blood of Christ. You have a Lord who is your Lord, who we are called and commanded to obey. You have been bought with the blood of Christ where he paid your debt and you are now his children. You might say, well, we're all God's children. No. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. We are not all God's children. We are all God's creation, but you are his child when you have been adopted by him brought into his family through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we 
apply or act on or obey these truths from God's word? Isn't that really the question? Isn't that always the question? The answer is that we don't just make sure we're reading the Bible or hearing the Bible or sermons or preaching or podcasts or books, etc. But every single Sunday when you hear the word taught, every single day when you read the word, hopefully, we must ask ourselves this. What am I going to do with what I just learned? Every single Sunday, that's the question we ought to be asking ourselves. What am I going to do with what I just learned? How am I going to respond to this biblical truth? And I found a really great framework from an author, theologian named Matthew Harmon. He wrote a book called Asking the Right Questions, and it presents two sets of questions. You might want to pull out your phone to take a picture of the screen, or if you can write fast, this is our conclusion. Two sets of questions. The first set is on understanding the Bible. We need to ask ourselves this. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about God from the parable of the talents? Or I'm sorry, the parable of the wise and foolish builders. We learn that God has given us commands to obey. We learn that we will stand before him and give an account. So what do we learn about God from what we just read? Second question, what do we learn about people? We learn from the parable of the wise and foolish builders that there is a wise person and a foolish person. Which one are we? Are we the ones who hear and obey or the ones who hear and do not obey? Third, we can ask ourselves in understanding the Bible, what do we learn about relating to God? Many scriptures teach us about how we are to relate to God in prayer, in repentance, and in faith, in obedience. Fourth, in understanding the Bible, what do we learn about relating to others? There's plenty of commands of how we are to love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. So when it comes to understanding the Bible, here are four great questions that you can ask yourself after you read the Bible. The next set of questions comes to applying the Bible, which is especially what we're talking about today. Number one, what does God want me to understand from what I just read? This, what I'm trying to teach you is active reading, not passive reading. Actively studying God's word to where it's not just a check mark where I read it, but we have implications on our life. So number one, what does God want me to understand? What does he want me to get out of this passage? Number two, what does God want me to believe? Is there something from the passage that I just read that God wants me to believe? Number three, what does God want me to desire? So many of those passages that I, I, I rattled off really quickly talk about our joy being full and God's commands not being burdensome. We could go to the Old Testament in, the, in Proverbs where it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What does God want me to desire? Is there anything from what I just read that teaches me what God wants me to desire? And finally, fourth, all of that cascading to, what does God want me to do? If you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, God wants you to do something which is to repent and turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are a person who hears the word, he wants you to do something which is obey what is written or what you heard. This is what we ought to be asking ourselves every day when we read scripture and when the word is taught to us. Lord, I ask you today by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
that you would let us learn from the truth, that we would understand this parable, that we are called to be the wise builders. You're inviting us to be wise as those who hear your word and obey it and do it. The storms can come, the winds can blow, the rain can fall, the flood can rise. But if we have built our foundation on you by obeying your word, then we can stand. Lord, I ask if there is any who needs to know you today, who have said, I realize I need a Savior, Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would give them the courage and the grace to confess and repent of sin. I ask that you would help them to place their trust for salvation in Jesus Christ, not in their works and not in their good deeds, not in obeying, but in your perfect obedience. Lord, transform us by your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us power to obey you, not begrudgingly, but that our joy may be full because you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.